So one of the most rare things in sports across the board is to have somebody come up through the ranks and get all the way up to the professional level and be so good and so unique at what they do that the entire sport changes. I think of guys like Babe Ruth, guys like Joe Montana and Michael Jordan who were just absolutely so amazing at playing their respective sports that the entire league, the entire industry had to take notice and adapt what they were doing. Some people brought in more of what that person's doing. Some people just had to react and, and be more responsive to try and counteract some of the greatness, whatever it might be. It's one of the most rare things to happen in sports to revolutionize the way that the game is played. And I don't think anybody has done that more in the sport of bowling than Jason Belmonte. Pete Weber definitely changed the game. He brought in a high revolution, a high backswing, high power type game. But Jason, with his two-handed approach, uh, making his debut in 2009, winning pretty fast and not stopping since then, I don't think the amount of impact that he has made on this game, I would argue positively, can really be quantified. What is up, you guys? Welcome to 10-Pin Life Podcast number 15 with Jason Belmonte. This podcast is something that if I were to retire 10 Pin Life today, and this is definitely not what's happening, but if I were to stop at this point, I could hang my hat on it and be really proud of it. Um, to be able to sit down with a gentleman who I think is the best in the world um, and just talk about bowling and talk about what it takes to compete at the highest level on the other side of the world um, is something that I'll never forget. If you haven't done so already, please be sure to subscribe to the channel, follow the podcast, like this video, share it with your friends, whatever it is that you can do to engage uh, with 10-Pin Life. I really appreciate it when you can. It also helps boost it up, and I think it's a pretty good conversation. I think most everybody that is in bowling will appreciate it um, because it's a, it's a good insight into the mind of the man that's one of the more polarizing figures in bowling, but also um, one of the most successful and there's a lot of insight that we can all glean from the, the uh, information and stories that Jason shares in this conversation. So I really hope you guys like it. This is 10 Pin Life Podcast number 15 with Jason Belmonte. I'm really just hoping to learn more about you as a person and as a bowler and um, I know that you've done a lot of sharing your story especially from like when you were first picked up a bowling ball up until the point on the PBA tour and um, that's really kind of where I want to put the initial focus after I ask you a strange questions to start because sure. I always start these in a weird way um, you're from Australia. I believe you're from the uh, western side of Australia, correct? Eastern. Eastern side, okay. 50 50 uh, guess. You know, you got I, I had, I just, <laughs> I'm glad you did your research. I, 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 <laughs> my, my, uh, my best friend's uh, family, they're from, the, uh, they're from the Perth side of Australia. Okay, that's so, Western Australia. Yes, yeah. yes. Um, what is the scariest, most deadliest thing that you've ever encountered in person back home? Um. Probably just a just a brown snake. Okay. So they're 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 pretty bad. Yeah. Um, and they are, I wouldn't say um, rampant where I live, but there's a few of them. So I definitely don't like seeing them. But I got 
I mean, I was uh, at my uncle and auntie's place and they have like, uh, they live on an orchard, they grow apples. So we have dams on the property. And I took the bike out and I just went and was kind of chilling by the dam and I was just laying on the bank of the dam, just the sun was beating down. It was just a really nice day. And then I just felt this really weird thing over my left uh, shin. And as soon as I felt the second movement of it, I'm, I knew exactly what it was. And all I was thinking was just please, don't be a brown snake and don't bite me. And I kind of slowly popped my eyes open and looked down my leg and there was this brown snake. It wasn't that big, it was probably only about, about that big. Yeah. But I stayed as still as possible and was just like, please, because they can stay in one spot for a really long time sure. and just kind of sunbake themselves. So mm -hmm. I was like, oh, please don't, don't be here to like relax. You know, I'm, I'm <laughs> be on your way home or something. <laughs> And it was probably only a couple of minutes later. It felt like an eternity. And yeah. then it just kind of slithered off my ankles and, and away it went. And I just went, ah, oh, went back to sleep. <laughs> Thank God that's over. That's just one of those things. As an American, you're always told that Australia is the land of all of the things that want to just kill you in nature. So Yeah, I mean, it's, it's definitely portrayed. Like you can't take a step out your front door without getting bitten, you know, or stung or something like that by mm -hmm. something. But it's not that bad. It's... <laughs> You know, there are spots where, you know, you definitely want to be wearing boots and, you yeah. know, protective clothing. But, you know, you want to go down, down the road, yeah, you'll be all right. Be all right. Awesome. Well, yeah, like I said, I just like to start these out in just interesting ways and see if I can find something that you haven't been asked in an interview before. No, right? well, look, I'm an open book, so ask what you want um, and I'll give you uh, an honest answer. So when I talked to uh, Tim Mack... Uh, back a couple months ago, he kind of mentioned that he was a part of like the recruiting process for yourself back when you were a teenager. And I believe that you got your first pro contract at 16. Is that roughly correct? No, not entirely true. Okay. So um, this is my 20th year with Storm. Okay. So in 2002 was when I first signed um, a contract. Now mm -hmm. I met Timmy when I was 16. Mm -hmm. um, and so that was 1999. So it took a few years before I actually signed an official yeah. storm contract, but I was 16 when Timmy first saw me. Mm -hmm. And um, you know, I knew who he was and mm -hmm. just idolized the guy. And I didn't know a lot of the, of the story after we met, right? Because I, I went back home and you know, it's not like phones and emails and, and stuff like that today, the internet. So I didn't know any of the story until a few years later when Timmy was like, all right, I've got your contract. Um, let me tell you how this all came about. And it was just really cool to hear how excited he was to meet mm -hmm. me and see me bowl and how excited Bill Crispin was. So yeah, it's been, it's been it was a long time ago. Mm -hmm. Yeah, a lot of people mm -hmm. like on tour, I don't think they realize like how long I've known Timmy for. It's mm -hmm. been a really long time. There's probably no one else on tour that has seen me bowl more balls than, than Timmy oh. Mack. Yeah. I mean, yeah, you guys probably had some circles that crossed pretty significantly there in their 2000s, really. Well, he, he kind of took me under his wing for a lot of his amateur career. He, we traveled together. You know, he would tell me what tournaments I should be going to. He would introduce me to people. And, you know, that was for years um, as a you know, late teenager, early 20 year old kid, mm -hmm. just kind of experiencing this life of traveling and, and competing and, you know, how to, how to organize yourself and structure it and how to compete. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, I was able to watch, you know, one of, in my opinion, one of the greatest ever throw a ball down the lane, do it 
and do it so well. Yeah. Yeah, so like that time between, because 2009, I believe, was your first PBA title at the Long Island Open, mm -hmm. if my memory serves yeah. me right. Yeah. See, I did some research. Yeah, you did some. Yeah. <laughs> um, so you've got, you've basically got a decade in there where you go from discovered to this guy who's throwing it different than everybody else that Randy Peterson can't stop talking about how crazy this is. And it's like, it's essentially the first time, um, even though Oscar had been around and there's some other guys doing it unique, but 2009 was like the breakthrough. What was that decade like? Like, what did you do? Like, how did you come to be the bowler that you are in your twenties? Yeah, I mean, I think I, my path and my journey was probably a little bit delayed to come on tour than you know, some of the guys that are out here now, like you know, we've got Anthony Simonson, mm -hmm. who was 16 when he came out and bowled his first PBA events, and EJ Tackett was in his really early 20s, um, and there's a whole lot of guys uh, that kind of fall into that category, and, and I was still bowling in Australia, and the occasional event you know, in, in Asia, mm -hmm. um, but I'm really glad I kind of took the the detoured path because the first portion of my amateur career obviously whilst been in Australia my first international portion was through Asia so I bowled all through Thailand Philippines Singapore Malaysia Indonesia and I got to experience and see those types of environments those different oil patterns different style of play different formats and then from there you know I was able to then take the next leap which was to Europe and then I was able to compete all through Europe and see another environment, another class of player, a different style of player. Um, and I learned so much from each part of the world on how to play, how to play the game of bowling. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm really grateful for that because I, I don't know if I had have just been, you know, from when Timmy met me, a 16-year-old kid and just kind of said, hey, let's bring you to the States and let's see if you can compete on tour. I just, I don't think I was ready. And mm -hmm. um, I think a lot of the attributes from other players that I watched in different zones, I, I kind of mimicked them and how they performed and in, in, in different moments. And I think that really helped me mm -hmm. on the pro tour. So I don't know if I would have been as successful as quickly on tour had I have just went, yeah, let's go to the PBA tour. So, yeah, like I said, I, I wouldn't change it. Mm -hmm. you know, I wouldn't want to, to have started earlier. Mm -hmm. um, and I've had some like ridiculously amazing experiences. My wife and I, we moved to Europe for a year, lived in France to bowl on the European tour and do some traveling. Um, you know, I've lived in Sweden. I've traveled to over 50 countries in the world. And, you know, it's... Again, uh, an experience that had I have gone on tour right away, I don't know if I would have done that and mm -hmm. experienced what I have, and, and I'm really, really grateful. Mm -hmm. there's, there's two ways I want to go, but I'm going to stick to the bowling route for now because I think uh, Kimberly will come up in a lot of different stories that you'll be able to tell, and I'm really curious about being a dad and doing this too. Is uh, you, know, you kind of mentioned it in there, like guys that you mimicked, um, you know, guys that you, you watched and, and tried to do what they do, um, which you're that guy now, but when you were growing up, who was, who was your bowling idol? Who was the guy that you really wanted to emulate? Yeah, I've had a few. Um, when I was really, really young, the best bowler in my hometown, his name was Peter Brown. Um, he had a, a comb over. Um, he was a lefty with a wrist guard and he bowled really straight. 
the complete opposite to, to <laughs> me in nearly every sense. And man, he was the best in town. And mm. you know, back then, if you were to average to 10, that was out of this world. And because and we were a small country town, bowling was new to, mm. to our area. We didn't have yeah, you know, thousand people over the years be bowlers and pass knowledge. And so everyone was really new at it. And this guy was just the best and I wanted to be just like him. So I did my hair like him and wore my clothes like him. And then a little bit later, I met the best bowler in Australia and his name was Andrew Frawley and we're still friends today. So I was only, you know, 13 when I met Andrew and he was the best bowler in Australia. And I just watched him and, you know, the way that he was just so like steady and controlled, I just loved it. And mm. then I met Timmy. And Timmy's probably been my, my biggest idol in terms of how to win. Mm. You know, I, I watched him compete in some of these events where I was averaging 180, 185. That were just impossible oil patterns. And he was bowling for the title. And just that passion and determination and that never give up attitude. And I just, I really absorbed that into into me and it was a real joy to watch mm -hmm. and, and a lot of people unfortunately because this was again before you know youtube was big and social media we we never got an opportunity to really see timmy in his in his prime and i was fortunate enough to watch a lot of it mm -hmm. and it was impressive mm -hmm. it was so so fun to watch so between those three they were definitely the early inspirations and then you know i saw norm duke and mm -hmm. it was just like I actually got my very first bowling ball uh, because of Norm. He was um, curving a uh, Columbia Purple Beast on a show and he won. And he just, he was hooking the whole lane. And that's exactly how I bowl. And I was like, oh my God, this guy's he's using this ball. I was like, dad, 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 you've got to, you've got to get me this beast. Norm Duke is using the beast. I want to use the beast. And that was my very first ball that I ever owned. Nice. Um, so that was and obviously since then norm and i have become friends very mm. good friends over the years and just listening to him and, and talking to him watching him master his craft on the lanes you know he is the ultimate um bowling physician mm -hmm. you look at the way that he he's a surgeon with a boy he, he's so precise in his his decision making his shot making and um you know i really really like to just sit back and just be a fan, turn that switch off that I'm a bowler and just turn it on to the fan and mm -hmm. just watch him compete. So yeah. those are the, the, the four guys in my career that I've really looked up to. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, and actually that's a great kind of transition because you talked about like what it took, you know, what you, what you learned when you were, um, you know, on the, in Asia and in Europe and all of the opportunities to see more bowlers than probably most anybody ever really gets the chance to um, in the way that they approach it in different conditions and different, does everything um would you say that in that time frame before you make your breakout in the uh, united states was it more you were learning the physical attributes of the game or was it more mental or kind of a little bit of both like what was the is there something that stands out like i really learned this in that process it honestly is a bit of everything sure um i think too many people look at an individual physical game and then compare it to another individual physical game and if, it, if they don't look similar they think there are no similarities just because they look a little different and I've been the complete opposite I try to find things in people's games that I really admire or that I think would work 
and I find a way to incorporate that either into my own game or into someone I'm helping. Or, and when you go and you see as many styles as I've seen across the world, there's brilliant players and no one looks the same. Mm-hmm. But they all have these commonalities. So finding them and realizing, hey, you know, these 15 players, they're all very different. But man, they've got one, two, three, four, like seven things. They all do very similar. Mm-hmm. Um, why, why am I not doing some of those? And then finding ways to mold that into my game. And that's across the board. That's lane play, right? Like how are these people playing the lane? Why am I not able to play the lane like that? It's the way that they approach their mental game. You know, why are these brilliant bowlers so either calm or aggressive or whatever it is what are they doing that i i think i can incorporate and i think the moment that you fall into the well you're so different nothing about that will work for me i think you're missing out on an opportunity to learn Mm -hmm. something Mm -hmm. you just got to look close enough Mm -hmm. Uh, and then obviously when you come on tour you're just now in front of the best bowlers in the world. Mm-hmm. And all you're doing is like, I, I want to borrow that tool and I want to learn that one and I'm going to steal that idea. And you know, like you just, <laughs> you're just constantly seeing ideas and then it's up to you to implement them into your own game and then get good at it. Yeah, for sure. And that's, yeah, that's, that was kind of where my head was going is, all right, now we're from 2009 to today. Uh, was your first major in 2011? My first win, well, it's, it's a little bit uh, convoluted because my first win was actually in, in 2013 okay. um, when I beat Wes Malott for the USBC Masters. However, yeah. uh, earlier I had beaten uh, Mike Devaney for the Players' Championship, but at the time, mm. the Players' Championship wasn't a major. And I don't know why, because it was prior, and then for like two years in the middle, they didn't have it as a major and mm-hmm. then they started having it again. Yeah. So um, the players committee at the time um, brought that up to the PBA and the PBA were like, yeah, why, why, wasn't, it, why mm-hmm. wasn't it a major? So they retroactivated that event okay. um, as a major. Gotcha. So, but yeah, I mean, I, I will always still feel that that match against Wes in, yeah. in um, Carolier in, in, in uh, New Jersey will always be my first major just because at the time it was to mm-hmm. me and that that was a really cool match to be mm-hmm. a part of a really cool match um what i'm what i'm curious about is um so uh, talking to some of the younger guys that are out on tour now they they can at least sort of clearly define that point where they go from the other guy to like i'm a part of this like i'm i'm a professional bowler on the pba tour but like you kind of mentioned, most of them are in their 20s, early 20s. Did you ever have that where it was like, you know, I'm, I'm, the, I'm the other guy or did that ever enter your mind or was it, all right, I'm doing this and now this is just what we're doing and it doesn't matter what, and what anybody else thinks or even what I think necessarily? Yeah. Um, no, I mean, I don't know if I ever thought I was that other guy. What I did think was I think a lot of the guys on tour and the fans um, of bowling, especially when I came to the US, thought um, I was a little bit of a fun story that mm-hmm. will probably be gone in yeah. you know, a season or less than. Um, and I always got that feeling that whenever I walked in, I was like, you know, people would be like, oh, that's the two-handed player. 
but it wasn't like, oh, he, he could be really good. It was just like, oh yeah, he'll be gone. Yeah. And I, I, had a, I got my first win on tour in my eighth event on the PBA tour. So it wasn't like I was on tour for a few years, making up the numbers, coming 50th every week. And then I, I, you know, I, I had pretty, pretty quick success. Mm-hmm. So I think when I won in that tournament, um, there was a, a distinct realization from everyone, from competitors to fans that, well, he can actually bowl and mm-hmm. he can actually win. Mm-hmm. So we probably need to start taking him a little bit more seriously. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was, a, that was a cool moment for me because when I did first come to the US, um, even as an amateur, America is a very different place um, than, than lots of other parts of the world. And you know, I've come to learn that if you're loved, you are, you are loved with everything. And if you are not, you are also not loved with everything. <laughs> it's very rare that someone's kind of like, you know what, I don't mind. It doesn't really bother me. Like everyone has a very strong opinion one way or the other. Mm-hmm. And this is also a place I feel like in bowling where traditional roots are very strong. And there is, there is strong beliefs about their own bowling, their history, the game's history. So when you throw in this Australian two-handed bowler that you know, is essentially defying the way that they taught the game, the way that they were taught, the way that they saw the game, it became a very um, touchy thing for a lot of people. They just didn't like it mm-hmm. and they, they didn't want it to be a part of their game here. So when I won, it was cool because I think I was able to validate Mm-hmm. me as a player but it also gave me a lot more um i was well the public was made aware of me very quickly mm-hmm. and then it became well is this is this right um should we should we ban it this doesn't seem right is he cheating and like i said because you've got that line drawn you know down the middle people can be quite loud mm-hmm. and they wanted their voices to be heard so it was a pretty rough time after i won because it was we should take the title away. We need to ban this guy. You know, this style is, is not how the game was meant to be played. And I'm, I'm, at the time I was young and I'm reading and listening to all of these things. And it's like, it's hurting me because I'm like, I just love this game. Like, this is just how I bowl. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm not doing anything. You know, I just, I want this game to be amazing and I want to be a part of it. And I just felt like a large portion of the loudest people were the ones saying, you know, send him home, get him out of here, ban him from the PBA, let him go bowl in those amateur events around the world. And, and um, you know, I just didn't, didn't feel good, mm-hmm. you know, and that, was, that wasn't fun. And even when you're competitors, when you walk into, uh, into the paddock and you've got your competitors, you know, going through your equipment, uh, taking photos of everything and then talking about you and you get that sense of like, well, this is not a very friendly place to be right now. Mm-hmm. But, you know, above all of that was my desire to be, to be a, a great player. Mm-hmm. And the PBA Tour is our Mount Everest of competitions. It's, you know, if you want to put the flag atop of the hill, you mm-hmm. want to go to the biggest hill in the world. Mm-hmm. And, and I wanted to be there. So you kind of just have to learn to deal with it and, and understand it's really not about you as a person. It's, it's more about their beliefs and their history and their traditions and uh, 
hopefully you can convince them it's not that bad, mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. And actually, that, um, that's, you, you're really good at making transitions with it. So um, you, you talked about it in there about, like, it, basically you wanted to be the, the greatest in the world, and the only way to do that was to be the greatest in the PBA Tour because that's the top of the hill. And um, I think a lot of guys, when they come out, um, I mean, I would hope that that's most of the people that are bowling on the PBA Tour's goal, right? You, at least, I would assume it is, because uh, it's very natural. Like, I'm not going to compete with the best in the world to take 30th, right? Like, I want to be great. But you've, that, that was, you know, that was, what, 13 years ago? Has that changed at all? Like, has your has your goals and motivations and like the thing that keeps you flying back and forth over the Pacific Ocean changed? Like what is, what is the thing that motivates you comp compared from 2009 to today? Yeah, I think in my rookie year, the goal of, of wanting to be number one, the best in the world, was something I looked at as um, a timeline. You know, I, 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 I'm very real. So I knew when I came out on tour, I, I wasn't going to be the best in the world year one. Mm -hmm. You know, I wasn't going to be the best in the world year two. So I, I gave myself an opportunity to, to put that goal a little further down the road. And that was a motivation was, you know, every year, I think from my rookie year, I was higher in the rankings. And that was my goal. I'd turn up and go, okay, last year I finished, you know, 20th in the rankings. I want to be higher than that by the end of the next season. You know, and then it was eighth. It's like, great, right now I've got another goal to be above that. And if you keep following that trajectory and path, well, you'll get to number one. Mm -hmm. Once you get there, um, I learned really quickly watching that. And I, I don't know, it may sound a little controversial, but because I didn't know them. But I got this sense that when someone reached number one, it was almost like they just took a breath and went, ah, I mm -hmm. did it. Mm -hmm. And whether it be the other people's performances or work ethics or skills were getting better um, or that player at the top didn't push any harder because he was there. He thought he'd done it. Mm -hmm. It always seemed like that player would fall and another one would rise. Mm -hmm. And then that person would be there and then he would fall and then another would rise. And there was only a very small few number of people who were consistently, consistently in and around that top three. Mm -hmm. And I was like, I wonder why that is. So when I was getting there, I reached to be the number one. I was voted player of the year. And I did, I felt that I did it. And really quickly, I kind of like, you know, slapped myself across the face and went, so, well, so what? Mm -hmm. You know, that's today. Mm -hmm. What do you want to do tomorrow? And then it's like, you know, do you want to be 10th tomorrow? No, I want to be number one still. Well, let's continue that part. Whatever you were doing to reach number one, it doesn't stop. It's got to continue. Mm -hmm. And now your goal, yeah, you can continue to shift it and just say you want to stay at number one for another year, two years, three years. But now let's put some other goals in, in the path. And if you're accomplishing those, this number one in the world concept well that's just a byproduct of doing the other things sure and that's what i that's what pushes me i mean 
now with family and, and children, obviously you have a financial responsibility and you, you have an obligation to, to support them, but performance will give, uh, will give a lot of these rewards, financial accolades. So you have to be able to not use those as, well, for me anyway, I don't use those as the motivator. That's not why I get out of bed. I don't get out of bed to make money. Mm-hmm. I get out of bed because I want to bowl and I want to get better at something and I want to win something and I want to I want to grow a legacy. Mm-hmm. If I do those things, I will support my family financially. You know, mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. to this day, my goal or my goals. Well, now I have like, you know, the are you crazy goals. And I started making those a couple of years ago where, you know, you tell somebody your idea and they look at you like, are you crazy? Yeah. And um, now that's the, you know, the key path is to accomplish these things along the way to reach your are you crazy goals. Mm-hmm. I'm curious though, I, I want to digress on this one just a little bit because I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask one question and then hopefully it goes into the next one and you can kind of put them together. Sure. You've probably been told or heard the comparison that you are the Tiger Woods of bowling where it's like, you, you, you really alluded to it, where it's like, you know, in the, in, the, in the 90s in golf, guys would go to the top, they'd fall. Top, fall. 2001 hits, Tiger, Wood hits, Tiger Woods hits the top, he's there for 20 years. Just unstoppable force. The comparison is fair. Um, and Tiger has been, you know, very open in how much his game has changed. Um, the way his motivations have changed. With, with knowing that and then ultimately those goals changing, like what is the process like of continuing to improve? Like how do you, how do you quantify what your process is to continue to get better? Like what do you, what is the guy who is by all intents and purposes the best in the world at what he does continue to get better? Well, I've never bowled a, a perfect tournament. And I don't mean by scores. Mm-hmm. I mean just in execution, in decision making, in, in lame play, in anything. Um, so there's, there's errors there, mm-hmm. right? If it's not perfect, then, then I'm making mistakes. I'm trying to, every tournament, um, create less mistakes. And that's that learning process. It's not easy to do after bad performances because I am a, a really competitive person and, and I'm successful. Mm-hmm. So when you don't have success, um, that's probably the other thing that's, that's very different about me is some people are content when they, they reach a level of success and they don't have a good week, they fall back on, well, it's okay. You know, like I had a good week last week or you know, I've, I, I've had a good season so far and I, I just, it doesn't sit well with me. Mm-hmm. I could win every event and then the last event of the year not make the cut and I'm furious because that's just who I am. Mm-hmm. So you finish an event and you look back and you go, wow, look at all these errors, look at all these mistakes. Right, we're rectifying as many of those as we possibly can. And mm-hmm. every new event, there's a new mistake that I'm finding out or I'm learning. Or maybe I'm changing as, as, a, as an individual and something that wasn't an issue before has become an issue now and now I have to deal with it. So there's always something that you've got to be thinking about to, to work on. 
um, the comparison to Tiger, um, it's very flattering because I, I look at Tiger as someone who, yeah, I mean, changed the game of golf and just was, yeah, he just dominated. He's just, he's just yeah. Tiger Woods. Like he's just Tiger Woods, you know, so <laughs> that's a really flattering comparison. And maybe comparisons like that kind of fall back into that category of motivation. Like, you know, you, do you want to be compared to some of the greatest athletes in their other sports? Mm -hmm. Well, if that's the case, you can't let up. You, know, mm -hmm. you have to keep going. Like their legacies are bigger than yours. So if you want that comparison at the end of your career, well, then you better achieve equal to or more than what these other superstars in their sports have done. And that's, you know, it's a little bit more prideful, probably a little bit more selfish goal, you know, to have that, he is the tiger, where he is the, mm -hmm. the whatever of bowling. But it helps motivate me, because mm -hmm. I, I do. I mean, I haven't come all the way over here and wanted to leave as someone who in five years is forgotten. Like, mm -hmm. that's, not, that's not what I want. Mm -hmm. I, I want to leave a legacy behind that, like a Jordan, where 20 years after I'm, I'm done competing, people are still chasing what I left behind or they're, they're using what I was able to do to, to be part of their games, you know. And that's something that's really important for me as well. So, yeah, you know, I don't think I'll ever master the game of bowl. I don't think I'll ever bowl a perfect tournament. And I, I'm, I'm good with that because it means that I'll just continue to learn something new every single week. Mm -hmm. You talk a lot about legacy, um, and definitely, you know, as a prof any professional athlete, legacy is built on in their competitive landscape, right? Like, uh, yeah, I can't think of an example, but it's very, it's it's probably happened in the past. But an athlete typically, uh, actually, maybe a good comparison is like Dennis Rodman because you brought up Jordan. Like Dennis is known for his charisma and the type of person that he is even though he was an absolutely dominant defensive force in the nba for 15 20 years but um typically athletes are going to build their legacy with what they do in their competitive landscape um, which you're doing but it's in 2022 i'd also say that it's a lot more than that like there's a lot more opportunity and uh the the thing that um keeps coming or the phrase that keeps coming to mind for me is you're kind of bowling's king of collaborations you know, from the NFT to everything you're doing with Cool Wick, and it always seems like you're working on something. Is that something that you're doing, or is that like opportunities and projects that are being brought to you, and you're just like, "Yep, let's do it. Let's let's make this thing cool." Or like, how does that kind of work? Yeah, I mean, it's a it's a bit of a bit of both. Um, I I'm always thinking of yeah. something, always, um, and if it's not about bowling it's if it's not about my own personal brand um it's about someone else and how to bring them in to to the sport of bowling and that's why doing videos with dude perfect um mm -hmm. you know throwing bowling balls out of nascars mm -hmm. uh, just a whole range of you know um, pool tables inside of uh bowling center trick shots and things like that there yeah. are always ideas that i figure maybe it doesn't build my professional career but it can help grow bowling and if we can grow bowling 
then maybe that helps the professional side or mm -hmm. competitive side of bowling. So sometimes it's literally just kind of scrolling through, you know, my social media at the end of a day and seeing something and going, hmm, I wonder how I can work with that person to make it more bowling orientated or if it already is bowling orientated to create more awareness mm -hmm. in, in our own um, industry. So it, like more recently, I just signed on with uh, um, an animated project, a, a magna anime cartoon based bowling program that the writers and the illustrators um, are not bowlers. They love bowling, mm -hmm. but they bowl with house shoes and house ball. And I saw a couple of their images and that was an opportunity that kind of presented itself. And I thought, well, let me reach out to them and see if I can, one, help them grow their uh, magazine and their comic book. And two, maybe that space, that anime, uh, magna, comic book world has a lot of bowling enthusiasts, but not bowlers. Mm -hmm. So maybe I can help reach them and bring them into our game. So those are the avenues and what I see and how I think I can help. Um, you know, Cool Week obviously has been an awesome partner of mine. Mm -hmm. And for, for a long, long time, I've had so many ideas on, you know, how to create a brand and merchandising. And um, one thing that was really important to me was that you know, Coolwick wasn't going to do it because they saw a dollar sign. Is I was like, you know, there are going to be certain messages and certain things that I really want my brand to be associated with. When we produce something, I want it to mean something, not just, hey, we'll slap a Belmo logo here, sell it for $30 and try and sell as many as we can. Like I wanted each item to kind of feel feel something. And, and Coolwick was just right on board and said, listen, you think it, we'll make it. Nice. And uh, they've been an awesome a really awesome partner um, and even more recently is my partnership with Volat Athletics mm -hmm. which is a brand that Sandra Gongora has started and when you hear her story and you and she's also a part of Coolwick and that's kind of how mm -hmm. that kind of partnership grew with Coolwick was you know here is someone who isn't in it for himself for herself she's in it to grow the game she's in it to help other people and that really struck a chord with me mm -hmm. so collaborating with people like that makes you feel good too because mm -hmm. it's not about you it's not about a dollars uh in your in your pocket it's about at the end of the day someone saying hey i saw your message and it really it really hit me and it helped me mm -hmm. that makes you feel good you mm -hmm. know so collaborating um i try to be really picky right like i'm not trying to find oh i have uh, 21 million Instagram followers. Here is uh, a pillow. I want you to start promoting this pillow and I'm going to give you this much money. Um, mm -hmm. I tend to steer very, very far away. I mean, unless the pillow was super comfortable and I want to use it myself. <laughs> right. You know? Um, you know, as I say this, I know people are watching this going, yeah, but what if they offered you a million dollars? Well, no one's offered me a million dollars to sell a pillow <laughs> just yet. So... Yeah, maybe <laughs> that decision will be a little more selfish. But for the most part, yeah. you know, I'm working with people that they have, a, they have an idea and the idea is bigger than just dollars. That's my point I'm trying to get across. Yeah. Yep. So, yeah, I'm looking at people on social media and I see, you know, people creating their own products or 
even the young guys with their YouTube channels and stuff like that. Like to me, I, I have no problem, you know, joining them yourself as an right. example. I'm sitting right here, yeah. You know, um, I have no problem being a part of it. I don't want anything in return for it because mm -hmm. I think that's a part of my responsibility is, hey, here are these people who are trying so hard to, to make the game that I love better and I'm in a position that I can maybe just kind of help mm -hmm. then let's do it, you know? And so far, no one's tried to be or try to take advantage by like mm. saying, can we get you today, tomorrow, the day after? Can you do all these things? Like everyone's been really awesome. Just thank you so much for helping however you can. And mm. that's another reason why I enjoy doing it because mm -hmm. it doesn't feel like I'm obligated to. It feels like I'm doing it because it's the right thing to do. Mm -hmm. I feel good and they're really appreciative. Is that something that uh, you got kind of like that idea or that belief system was that did that come from mom and dad because you've grew up in the bowling center that's still home and if i remember right that they own it yeah no mom, i mean mom and dad are, are kind and beautiful people um and i suppose you know maybe at some level seeing how they were with their customers and mm -hmm. you know there was always a solution to someone's problem always it was like you know hi um, I don't have any money for league this week. I'm getting paid next week. And I, like there was always a solution where mum and dad would be like, yeah, let's work this out, you know? And even if it got to the point where they weren't comfortable anymore with the situation, they would never abruptly end that relationship and say, well, you can't come back anymore until you fix all your debts. You know, it was always like, no, let's work this out. Let's find a way to, to make it work. And that's, again, I think at some level I saw that day to day, week to week growing up and I really appreciated that we don't know how everyone's doing right mm -hmm. behind closed doors we we see them in public now we see them on social media but which is even more um, harder to tell what's mm -hmm. really going on mm -hmm. so having compassion and empathy and, and wanting to help yeah I think I've seen that my whole life and in in my personal case it was quite the opposite so I understand how it felt when I'm this two-handed kid growing up, no one wanted to coach me, you know, no one wanted to help me. Um, it wasn't until, you know, obviously Timmy wanted to help me, but even he, well, he never coached me, mm -hmm. right? He never took me to the side and worked out my footwork and it was a very different kind of help. But along the way, you're not hearing, yeah, I can, I can work with you. It's the opposite. It's, no, you need to be like this so I can help you. So you, you see your parents and you, the people you look up to be one way and then you experience the other side of it where there isn't empathy and compassion and help mm -hmm. and you're like well i want to be more like that i know what it's like to not get it it doesn't feel good so don't do that mm -hmm. to other people mm -hmm. so i think the whole experience of my of my journey through life has definitely got me to where i am today obviously and yeah. this is this is why i am who i am mm -hmm. Um, it's just something that's knowing, so, you know, you, you talked a lot about growth of the sport and all that. And I, I'm a big believer in, you know, the locally owned bowling center and, you know, just basically what you guys are doing and like, like this is, this is our house, right? And we have our, our big bowling family and, and there's something so fulfilling about that and i think there's so many proprietors that i know that that do that right they they've installed this 
um, this culture of we're all welcome. We might all be different. Some of us are, you know, maybe a little bit cleaner than others in certain ways and all that, but we're still a part of one big bowling family. And that, that idea of being welcoming and just seeing opportunities to help grow the sport to me is something that's so natural to like proprietors that care. That's why I was just curious. Like it, it must've come from mom and dad at least a little yeah, bit. Yeah, But let me, I, I want to touch on something there cause it kind of, it hits a point that is a little frustrating for me as well. Sure. Is I, I think you're a hundred percent right in a locally owned place mm-hmm. that environment culture exists. However, I feel like the biggest setback within our industry is we have uh, a thousand places like this and it's very uh, localized. Yeah. And what I don't understand is if there are two competing bowling centers down the road and one is doing something really cool, it is very unlikely that this one over here will say, hey, all of my customers, this is a really cool thing that the other guys down the road are doing Mm -hmm. for the game of bowling. We should support it. And I feel like, I feel like we are a, a, a sleeping dragon of an industry and we will never be woken up because we're all trying to do what we can by ourselves. Mm -hmm. And you can go to the top, the PBA, USBC, governing bodies around the world, it is very, very unusual to see everyone on the same page mm-hmm. pushing the rock in the same direction. Mm-hmm. You know, and it's hard to move a rock when you've got people from all different directions pushing as hard as they can. And, and I see it, you're like, man, you're so passionate and you're so determined to get this thing moving, but you're not moving it because there's seven people on the other side of it pushing against you and then you ask them and they're doing what they can and it's like we just need to like stop for one second Mm -hmm. we all hold hands and we all get on the same side of the bloody rock and we all start pushing together and then we awake this multi-billion dollar industry that will rival any other sport in the world Mm -hmm. you know there, there aren't many sports where you can connect a hundred million people every single day. Mm-hmm. But we have an opportunity to do that, but we, we don't because we're all trying to get our little piece of the pie ourselves. Mm-hmm. I, I'm not necessarily blaming someone. No. It's just a, it's a fact that I'm seeing. Well, yeah. I shouldn't even say it's a fact because I guess that's subjective as well. It is a subjective <laughs> uh, you know, viewpoint, observation, observation yeah. that I am seeing. Um, not just here, but also around the world. So, mm-hmm. yeah, I love mum and pop places. My parents have them. Yep. Um, I tell my parents all the time, all the time, what I see around the world. And I think I'm really grateful that my parents are, are a, a, a proprietor slash lover of the game slash community-based, industry-based group of people mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. if someone is doing something good somewhere down the road we don't have a problem saying okay go and enjoy that at that other center mm-hmm. you know and that's that i think is what we need to do we yeah. really need to, to spread that kind of love and i know it's difficult because in your head as a proprietor you're like if i tell a customer to go somewhere else that's dollars leaving my business to go somewhere else mm-hmm. 
But I'd like to think of it as, but if they do it back to you, mm -hmm. we're all, you know, the pie is getting bigger. And even if your percentage of it drops, you're getting a bigger portion of a much bigger pie in mm -hmm. the end. In the end, uh, how we are now, I should say, is we all want a larger piece of a smaller and smaller pie. Mm -hmm. And what's good owning 99% of nothing? <laughs> right. It doesn't yeah. matter if you're the king of everything, if there's nothing there to, to be. I'd rather you know, own 20% of something and have it be wildly successful yeah. than 100% of something that's failing. So. Yeah. Anyway, that's just something, that's, that's an observation. Yeah, that's something yeah. that I think if we can, and, and it, it actually goes all the way down into the bowler themselves, you know, mm -hmm. like it, it is such a negative based community. So many, so often we are driven by our, our fears and our, you know, this is how it used to be and, and I don't like it like this anymore. And I'm like, well, there's got to be something you do like because mm -hmm. you're still here. You're mm -hmm. still a part of it. So let's focus on that. And you know what? Those things that you don't like, absolutely. If we can make changes to improve them, but there's a better platform than just saying, this sucks. <laughs> You're terrible. Right. Like, okay, tell me how mm -hmm. or a solution to make it better. Mm -hmm. And if we, we do that as a collective group, all the way, fans, players, to the top of industry and organization heads, don't tell me, you know, we wouldn't be in a better spot. And, and I'm trying, I'm trying to do yeah. what I can, but I also feel like for every time I'm trying to push that rock, someone's pushing it from another direction. And then I'm trying to shift to say, all right, well, maybe I'll go this side with that person. Four more people pop up on this side going this way. And now I'm like, well, I don't know which way I'm going. I guess I'll just do what everyone else is doing. Mm -hmm. I'll push it the way that I think it should be pushed. And hopefully more people see right. that and come behind me. And the nice part about building influence through success you know, at some you know, at some point, more people just naturally gather, you know, in in that direction. I, I hopefully, anyways, right? Maybe the rock needs to just move, not just right, right. Maybe it might move in a direction that isn't perfect, but just because it's moving shows that it can move, right. and it proves to everybody else around it's like, oh, this is different. What if we move it over here this time rather than back to exactly where it just was? So, fingers crossed. You and I are very much on the same page on that one. Um, but I, I want to switch gears a little bit and, and, and use the use the metaphor that we were just using. You talk about uh, pushing a rock. Well, you're a dad, and working with your family is just kind of the same thing, right? If if you're pushing in equal and opposite directions, <laughs> you're not going anywhere, and it's frustrating and all that. And and that's you know I'm I'm a father of one, and I have one that's going to be here in like two weeks. Congratulations! Uh, yeah, thank you. And um, well, we're learning that the hard way, and I'm sure that you are as well. And um, I'm curious though, like, you know what, what? I'm going to tell you a quick story. When you won the 2020 World Championship, and the whole family was there. I don't want that to be taken for granted because of how few times that that has actually occurred for you. And as a spectator, I was just so damn happy. Like, it was just so cool to see, like, you know, it's, it's you know, when EJ wins that, that same tournament four years ago, runs up against to hug his dad. It's a moment that if you're a bowling fan, it sticks out. It's that one that it's like, oh yeah, it's not just anyone throwing a bowling ball. Like, he's, he's a person. Um, and when you got to hug your whole family after winning that event, even though there was nobody else in the building, it was so cool. But 
you're like you know, everyone knows you're you're being a dad half a world away for three months out of the year how do you handle that and how does that kind of work in in like the logistics of keeping the wheel spinning yeah so when you know when i've got jordans on instead of bowling shoes <laughs> you, you have to be really aware of the time yep you have to plan you have to find those slots uh, throughout your day and night that work with the family back home. And sometimes that means you have to stay up till two in the morning because school doesn't break out back home until, you know, 1.45. Mm-hmm. So you have to wait. And I promised uh, Kimberly and my family, my kids, there will never be a day where I don't say hi. And even if that means it's a very quick five minute, hi everybody, I'm doing good, or how are you guys doing? I will, I will find a way to talk to you every single day. And that sometimes means waiting up late. And that's, for me, that's part of it. That's the responsibility. Um, and that's, that's part of the sacrifice that, that I need to make to accommodate the sacrifice that they make by supporting me leaving for half of, half of a year. Um, and it's, it's never easy to leave, ever. I've never, I've always, I'm always excited to, to travel and compete. I'm excited, but I, at the same time, I dread it. Because mm-hmm. I'm like, I know as soon as I get in the car and drive away, I'm starting to already miss something at home, a mm-hmm. moment or a, a bad day or a good day, whatever it is, I'm gonna miss it. And that's always troubling. Um, when you get over here, it becomes exponentially harder mm-hmm. because nothing feels better after a bad day than a hug. And that's for them and for me. When, when I have a bad day, you know, no one cares. If anything, people are happy here. He bowled bad. This is good for me, right? right. And when I bowl well, no one's happy because they want to win. Mm-hmm. So you don't get the hug either way, you know, that complete true support and that's when you realize um, when you look back at the history of the PBA tour you realize how hard it was for everyone now I may live in another country but even the guys out here um, they will go stretches of weeks you know where the schedule doesn't allow them to go home and um, obviously it's easier for them to get home but not so easy enough that after the block is done to pop in have a home-cooked meal and then come back out and tour. They're, they're away as well. Mm-hmm. I think that's a very underestimated part of our game that, that the fans don't realize mm-hmm. um, how emotionally taxing that is for us. Mm-hmm. And, and then you wonder why when that ring 10 happens, you know, later into a tournament and the frustration is built, um, it's more than just the ring 10. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, that was for something else that was important. You know, that was for, I'm missing my kid's birthday today and now I'm going to miss the cut because of that 10 pin, whatever it is. It's, it's just all of these emotions get rolled into your bowling. Yeah. Now, I've seen that, I've watched it, and I've, I've found a way. And sometimes it doesn't always work, but I've found a way that when I walk into a bowling center, I don't think about my family. Yeah. And I try to explain to them, when I'm on the, on the approach, I have one thing going through my head, and that is I'm gonna 
I'm going to win this tournament. I'm going to strike this, deliver. I'm going to make this. That, that's all that's on my mind. Mm -hmm. We could argue and fight right before it. We could have an amazing thing happen. And as soon as I walk through the doors, I leave it there. And I'm like, I'm here to do a job. As soon as it's done, mm -hmm. we can go back to fixing our argument or enjoying the celebration or whatever it is that I, that I, I need to, to now be reconnected with back home with. And it sounds a little bit cold when you say it, you know, I'm just not going to think about you today mm -hmm. uh, while I'm bowling. But I found that it makes me perform at a higher level. And in the end, I'm doing this partially um, to support my family. So mm -hmm. I think if more players, you know, were able to separate that line, um, you know, frustration probably wouldn't creep in as easy. It's really difficult. It's not like I've been doing this my whole, my whole life, been able to separate that. I learned it over time and just, you know, man, this is really bothering me that I'm not bowling well. And, and because I'm not bowling well, I'm not supporting the people back home that I have left to support. And then you bring that into the bowling center, then that stone nine just hurts even more. Mm -hmm. And you're, you're saying to yourself, you can't go on like this. Mm -hmm. You know, that extra weight, there's enough pressure as it is. You just don't add any more when you're competing. So, mm -hmm. and my family are really, you know, they don't take that personally. They're not mm -hmm. like, oh, he's not thinking about us today. Oh, why, why, why? <laughs> you know, they are very much, you know, hey, I'm about to, I'm about to start. I'll talk to you later. Mm -hmm. And when I text them back later, they're there to say hi. And I can't do what I do over here without that network, without them understanding how I am mm -hmm. um, and how awesome they are for me. And I tell them nearly every day how grateful I am that they picked me because, you know, it, it might not be as, it's still difficult, but it might be even more difficult if, you know, that network were different mm -hmm. to me. Um, and I don't, I don't uh, envy the, the guys or the ladies who travel, who have um, partners that are a little harder to deal with yeah. uh, when they travel. So I'm very, very lucky yeah. and I know it. Yeah, that's awesome. That's, and that's one of those things that goes, you know, uh, necessarily, it, it, the necessity of it being unnoticed, I think is, uh, is, a, is a reality. Because you don't want to, you're right, you're, you're so much not talking about it that nobody else notices it, right? Um, but it's almost assumed. It's just right. this assumption, oh, he misses his family. Yeah. Yeah, you know, or... Um, we all do. That's right. And, and, and the idea of assuming something and taking it as, yep, I'll just put that in the column of duh, <laughs> right? You, you, you don't realize at how deep that can be affecting someone. Yeah, right. And usually... There's no worries, that's the little that uh, heads fast, up. Yeah. Um, and usually when you see players that are not having success consistently, that's when you miss them the most. Yeah. You, you really do want to share in your celebration. You mm -hmm. really, that's another part of the, of the trip that you're like, man, I wish my family, so we go to dinner, have a nice party. But you, you also know that in our game, that moment happens so rarely compared to losing. Yeah. So you lose so much in so many events and you don't have that network to give you that hug and that kiss and to be there for you, 
that's the hard that's yeah. the hard part and then you get the, the videos and they're like hey dad we're really sorry you didn't do well we're really sorry that the pins didn't fall and you just know that would just be so much better if they were right here to, yeah. to say it but yeah. going back to your point about winning in front of them that was probably one of the most stressful and, and pressure filled uh, TV shows I had because I knew this may not happen again for half a decade or even longer that they will they will be with me on tour and to win in front of them was so important to me it was mm -hmm. just this is what i do everyone when you're at home this is what i do and see how i'm holding this trophy and you watch it on tv or on flow bowling and you wish you were a part of it well now you are and that that moment when i knew that i'd won all i was thinking about then was they get, to, they get to celebrate with me for the first time in my career. This is, this is going to be so amazing. And it's exactly what we went to dinner. We had ice cream. We walked the strip. You know, it was just, it was a really, really cool moment. Yeah. So, yeah. That's I don't awesome. more to say about that. But. Honestly, I mean, there's a billion other things that I could ask you about. But this is something that, uh, at the Hall of Fame dinner, um, Gary Mage talked a ton about how we're all this one big weird family. And Kirk and Mary talked about it. And, you know, that's like, I, I, I love the fact that bowling is a family, but also family is family too. And that's something that um, I don't ever want to take for granted. And I think that that's the perfect way to finish this conversation is right there. It's just them knowing, even though they already know, but now the, the rest of the world, whoever gets to see this and hear this, gets to know it too about how, how important and how cool that was uh, to be able to share that experience with all of them. So um, one day we'll continue this conversation because I have a, many, many other things that I want to ask you about. But I promised an hour, and I'm going to stick to an hour. So Jason. Thank you very much, man. Mate, I appreciate it. No problem it. at all. No problem. I've enjoyed it. Yeah, we'll definitely do it again. Perfect. Awesome.